0: You're listening to 2 for i I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Matthew Brown. Matt is a professor at Central Queensland University. He studied cognitive neuroscience for his PhD and did postdoctoral work in artificial intelligence and computational statistics. And he is now a researcher in psychology, in particular addiction, belief formation, cognitive fallacies, Religion, the Paranormal, and Conspiracy Theories. And he has a podcast on conspiracy theories together with Chris Kavanagh, which is called The Gurus Podcast. Uh,
1: decoding, so, the gurus, <laughs> decoding the Gurus, actually.
0: Decoding the Gurus. So please go and check that out. I actually listened to your episode. Um, what is his name? My name aphasia strikes again. <laughs> that incredibly annoying Russell Brandt. Ah. That's the person. Mm. Yes. Um and it was it's very fun to listen to the podcast and it's quite and it's quite an extraordinary experience to listen to Chris Chris's accent in particular.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, some 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 un, some unkind people have described it as in um um undecipherable brogue, but I think that's being mean. I can understand him just fine.
0: Oh yeah, I would say it's a very marmite accent. You are going to love it or hate it. <laughs> I have to say that I'm not sure how many episodes of that podcast I can listen to, because I was driven almost insane by by the claptrap that Russell Brandt himself said, <laughs> which you were repeating on the pod. So I don't know how how much more <laughs> listening to cranks and idiots I can take.
2: Mm, yes. I
0: apologize for any Brandt fans out there. Uh, he uh, he has also done some good stuff, but um, it's a lot of just nonsensical completely waffly Hmm. woo.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's the problem with that podcast is that we do tend to specialise in people who tend to do that kind of thing. So pity me, Iona. I need to listen to hours of this stuff before every episode. (laughs) Blame Chris, actually. He's the one who got me into
0: this. (laughs) I want to talk to you about gambling and your work on gambling addiction. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you first Became interested in that topic.
1: Um, Well, the truth is, I guess I um, I became interested in it because I had to be interested in it. I was looking for a job, Um, and um, I uh, I I took on a a lecturing job at uh, Central Queensland Uni, where I am now. And um, it's it's not a prestigious research university, so there weren't a great deal of. Options available, but uh, in in Australia we do have a healthy gambling industry, and um, wh- a small proportion of those gambling profits are diverted to uh, the government. Um, for well, actually, a large proportion are diverted, are diverted to the government, um, who spend a small proportion on it of it on research, and but that translates into a relatively large amount of money um, uh, in terms of research funding. So. Um I suppose I'm guilty of um following the money but the um the plus side of that is that I do relatively little teaching and an awful lot of research so um yeah so <laughs> I guess it's a very pragmatic kind of interest
0: when you went into it what was it that uh, surprised you what was, what was the first kind of surprise that you had um mm. or or were the results that you Obtain, have obtained from your research, are they what you would have predicted? Or has something about it changed your mind?
1: Mm. I suppose I hadn't thought uh, a great deal about gambling or um, gambling problems before um, starting to research it. Um, so there were actually many things that um, uh, surprised me and made me think about addiction and actually human motivation more generally. Um, and that's because Gambling is an interesting thing. It's um it, it's a very artificial activity. It's not the kind of um thing that people do I guess naturally in our sort of um, um everyday life. It's because it's a game of pure chance generally. So um and it, it's constructed in a way such that um you have to exert rel- relatively little effort in order to play. You just press a button or or do some quite easy activity. Um and you, from a purely rational point of view, you are guaranteed to lose money over the long term. Um, yet people play with the with the hope and intention of winning money that's that's the whole rewarding aspect so it's a fundamentally irrational activity um, yet it's something that a lot of people do and a lot of people uh, enjoy um, so I guess. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing to study because it's actually connected to a lot of other topics in terms of human psychology and human motivation and human cognition.
0: I'm thinking immediately um, about things like startup companies and other things that seem more rational on the face of it, because also 80 or 90 percent of startups fail, and yet people still continue to. Create new companies in the hope of uh, making money from that, in the hopes of success, mm. and that's a high-effort activity. So it's a lot of effort you're putting in with a with relatively little, with relatively poor odds of success. Um, mm. But yet it seems more rational because it feels as though we have more control, more influence o- over the outcome. Whereas in gambling, you have, uh, well, in pure games of chance where you're gambling like slot machines, you have absolutely no influence.
1: Yeah, and I guess the other difference is is that in um, sort of um, entrepreneurial activities, um, even though there might be a relatively high chance of failure, um, if you do succeed, then the potential rewards um, could be um, very large indeed. So if you think about the expected uh, return, which is the sort of um, the, the probability of the positive or negative event m- multiplied by the returns um, uh, conditional on the event, then um, doing uh, a high-risk startup or any kind of um, financial investment um, can often be rational. Uh, but the interesting thing about gambling is that um, the people who provide gambling products obviously do not want to operate at a loss, so. The expected return for the player is always negative, so it, so it is um, just in um, you know um, just purely statistical terms um, an irrational activity if if your goal is to make money. Whereas you could argue that something like business is 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 rational if you're prepared to tolerate a high degree of risk.
0: There's also, I mean, if you're successful in your startup, your business, uh, if your novel sells well, or um whatever it might be there is also an intrinsic reward you feel as though you worked hard for this and therefore you deserve it mm. and i can't imagine that it feels the same way i'm sure it feels wonderful to um win at gambling but even people who are uh, who have those winnings there must there must be a certain psychological emptiness to that yeah. because you don't feel that it was your you're doing? Uh, actually,
1: I think it's a little bit the opposite. I mean, when people win at gambling, and I, 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 never, I never gambled myself, actually, before, before getting into um, um, the research of it. In fact, I gambled for the first time uh, in Las Vegas at a conference. Um, we, we have gambling conferences in Las Vegas, funnily enough. Um, and I was I was in the foyer of Caesar's Palace, and uh, and I said, right, um, uh, I'm I'm going to gamble. I'm going to do this properly because I'd gambled before just with a, a few dollars, and you know, immediately lost them and thought, what what a silly activity. I can't believe anyone does this, but um, that's not proper gambling. So I, I I had a few drinks and I I I took out a few hundred dollars and I said, right, let's let's do this. Um, and it it is actually to to and I actually won. I actually this will probably make you angrier, Iona but I, I did actually win. I walked away with like a thousand dollars. But um, you're
0: just such a jammy bugger. <laughs> uh.
1: Anyway, um, but that was really good for me because I I understood what it's like to actually win a proper amount of money, and it feels good. Like it doesn't. it's you feel like you've gotten there's nothing like free money like there's this this feeling of getting something for nothing um it's a little bit like how you know um when companies are advertising they're they're often offering something free or you know there's 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 something special about um getting something for nothing and and you feel even though it's completely irrational and you know um you know me more than anyone and one knows that it's, it's, you can take no responsibility for it um, whatsoever, but you feel like a winner. It's a very strange uh, thing to, to, to win a large amount of money gambling. So I guess um, what I would like to say is that, yeah, gambling is, is, is actually an enjoyable activity, e- even when you're not winning um, over the long term. And of course, virtually nobody does. Um, in pure games of chance there there are professional gamblers who play games like poker and things like that who 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 do uh, who are able to win but the, the, they're the exception rather than the rule but it it is um it can be an enjoyable activity um for for a number of reasons it's not just that feeling of winning but it's also this kind of feeling of escape so it's it's a little bit like i don't know um sort of zoning out to netflix or or just Um, doing something where you get in the flow, if you know what I mean. Um, It it allows you to kind of just forget about the problems or your real life and just involve yourself entirely with the thing that's transpiring right in front of you. So the actual process of gambling can um, give that um, feeling of escape. Uh, As well as that, even when you're not winning huge amounts of money, those little wins, there's a lot of, there's often a lot of, you know bells and whistles and a lot of pos- a lot of sort of visual and auditory feedback, which is giving you um, sort of this 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 feeling of of excitement that stuff is happening. So um, yeah, no, I, th- I think it is an enjoyable activity for people who get into it.
0: Yeah, I heard that described in some of the things that I was reading in preparation for this podcast as dark flow,
2: mm. yeah. a kind
0: of negative uh, correlate of the chick sent me high in flow state the blissful the blissful flow state where you feel when you're completely absorbed in um, a joyful activity Yep, yeah um yeah so that, and that's, that's it right. feels sort of effortless and um and there there does seem to be this perennial idea that happiness is to be found in es- escape from the self in feeling part of something outside yourself Bigger than yourself. Mm. That kind of that image of flow. It's you're you're the water joining the river. I'm beginning to sound like Russell Brandt to you. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. And I, and,
1: I, and I think I think you're completely right. And I don't think there is such there is necessarily a huge distinction between sort of good flow and bad flow. It's just merely um that that feeling of being um in um engaged in something that is perhaps not terribly demanding but um, has your attention and allows you to kind of disassociate a little bit. Um, so um, gambling, especially things like poker machines, which is what we call them in Australia, I think they're called slot machines um, elsewhere, I, uh, maybe um, lottery terminals in uh, Canada. I'm not sure what they're called in the UK. I've forgotten. Um, uh, do, you, do, you um, know, do you know what? We
0: call them that. Slot machines are one armed bandits.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so they're they're a like a, a prototypical example.
0: Fruit, I think they're sometimes called fruit machines.
1: Fruit machines, sure. Sure. Um so they're the great example because they have the the spinning wheels, they have the icons, they have the um, you know, really sort of bright audio visuals, the the sound of money kind of coins falling and da da da, that kind of thing. Um so if once you get into the game, it just involves you completely. So it can be like like for many people who are into um, computer games or those idle games that people play on their phones, um, they, they play them for essentially the same reason. But I guess the difference is is that when you're gambling, you're actually chewing through usually um, large amounts of money. So it's, it's different from something like computer games, which you, know, you, you might find that you're wasting um, you know, a couple of hours on a day. Say and um, that's maybe time you could have better spent elsewhere. Uh, but the difference with gambling is that it is um think the games are entirely designed to just uh, funnel money uh, from you uh, to the operator so that's that's why it becomes a bit of a problem
0: well I wonder about the 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 kind of dark flow versus light flow if that is a valid distinction, I wonder whether um the level of effort or skill involved, um, I mean, not perceived effort, but actual kind of participation might be what makes the difference. I was thinking about, so there's a famous description, and I think it's the philosopher Hugh Blair, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, who debunked the earlier ideas of satisfaction about be being about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And he was observing people rowing and also, you know, team sport rowing like they do at Oxford and Cambridge, where they're sitting in where there are they're sitting in a boat in rows of two with a cocks at the front. And also people haymaking, gathering in bales of hay. And he said, these activities are actually uh, painful. You know, it's physically—it's physically stren. Haymaking is a physically strenuous activity, and so is rowing. Mm. I can vouch for rowing being very strenuous. Um, My my friend Helen Pluckrose calls her rowing machine Lucifer (laughs) for that reason. But uh, so therefore, people who are doing those activities ought to be miserable. But he said that he observed that they were—they were happy. And often haymakers would be whistling and singing whilst they were, um, collecting in the bales. And Blair's, Blair's conclusion was that happiness is not in seeking pleasure and fleeing from pain. It's in this sense of meaningful contribution to something bigger than oneself. And that is completely missing it when you're sitting playing the slot machine or scrolling twitter or watching netflix (laughs) and therefore to me at least even though if i spend two hours dancing tango you could say that i have wasted those two hours because i'm not i'm no longer earning any money as a as a dancer or dance teacher and therefore it might be seen as psychologically equivalent to spending two hours i don't know watching youtube videos Mm. nevertheless the feeling both during and after is very different, and especially after the having done feel sensation. And it feels so much, the first thing feels positive, and the second thing feels like a waste of time. It feels like I'm taking this limited resource and I'm frittering it away. And gambling, it seems to me, is Exacerbates that because you're not only frittering away time but money at the same time, so you've got two limited resources that you're depleting as you go. Does that make any sense to you as a psychologist?
1: Yeah, no, it does. Um, it's not some, it's something I've thought about a fair bit, and to be honest, I've never really completely worked it out. I mean, one of the distinctions is between productive activity versus non productive activity, so bringing in the hay is productive, but arguably you know um tango dancing or 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 rowing or even or jogging or something um which and and people do get a runner's high and things like that and and get a lot of satisfaction from um, various types of exercise even though it's not but you know one could argue those things are not actually productive but they still might feel meaningful and good and i wonder if part of it might be due to um i guess first of all just the um as as you hinted at the just the exertion of effort so you're you're putting a fair bit of effort in but you're getting a great deal of reward out and a lot of the time we are attracted to these low effort activities like scrolling twitter or um or gambling or um or even watching some nonsense on on netflix um because they are so low effort and even though the reward we're getting out of it is relatively low compared to some of our other options, which could take a lot more effort, um, we're sort of drawn to them. So we we have this sort of miserly um, approach um, to our um, expenditure of, of effort and calories, um, which isn't really in our best interests, but I guess makes sense in terms of a bit of a cognitive heuristic because um, we... Um, um and I I know you don't like evolutionary psychology. I know, but I mean well, we did... I've been
0: I've been converted actually. Oh. Um, <laughs> um I have been red pilled in that regard, <laughs> largely by my friendship with um Diana Fleischman ah. and um also from uh, by Steve Stewart Williams and other um people of that ilk. So mm. I have been a bit red-pilled in that regard. So go
1: ahead. Oh, okay. oh, good, good. Well, I'm I'm really glad to hear that because I, I know I've that gone, from... I've
0: come over to the dark side.
1: The dark side. Well, you're a you're a, a terrible person now, Iona. Welcome. Um, no, um, like I actually um, understand why um, people, general people, lay people, would have a negative opinion of evolutionary psychology because, um, you know, some some strange people do like Evo Psych, and uh, a lot of the very very dodgy. Well, that's an Australian term. But a lot of the very bad stuff um, tends to find its way onto social media. But um, I th- I f- for me, just as a practicing psychologist, and I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but I mean, one really can't understand things like addiction without recourse to uh, evo psych. Um, so some some of the very basic um, motivational or research on human motivation was um, done by the behaviorists like B.F. Skinner, who did things like put uh, pigeons in little boxes. It was very mean of him, but they he just wanted to look at conditioned behavior and see whether or not you could essentially train pigeons to peck a lever uh, in exchange for a, a reward. So the pigeons, you know, went um, when they pecked the lever, would get a little, a little bit of bird seed or something like that. Um and um, you know, they pretty quickly would learn to peck the lever and would just keep pecking the lever um, repeatedly. Um, so one of the really interesting things is that the, the pigeons would develop um, superstitions, little pigeon superstitions about the lever. So even though there was um, so w- when they were put in a situation where the um, um, pecking the lever actually didn't drop the seed, the seeds just came in randomly. Um, but they would do just random things and they would sometimes pick the lever or sometimes do other things. And, And they would just associate some random thing that they did with the um, the provision of the reward. So the pigeons would do little things like turn around or bob their head from side to side, and, and so on, um, thinking that it um, it was um, the sort of magical behaviour that would um, lead to the um, rewarding stimulus to be delivered. So um, it's a little bit similar to gambling, where the um, uh, rewards, the the wins, come completely randomly. And people do develop all kinds of um um cognitive distortions and fallacies associated with gambling and um and tend to um um and endorse a lot of superstitions about about gambling as well they have their lucky their lucky machines or they they wear their lucky scarf or all, all kinds of stuff like that so um so there's some really interesting connections with in terms of what people believe and Um, addictive behaviors like gambling there's a an interesting result where uh, some researchers found that actually people who were more religious actually had a greater likelihood of um, having gambling problems and and in fact that that was mediated by or the the reason why they had um, more gambling problems was actually due to Uh, Greater endorsement of gambling fallacies—that is, irrational beliefs about gambling, sort of superstitions about gambling—and in fact, in some research that we've done with one of my um, PhD students, we've uh, narrowed that down a bit and found that it's there. There are various aspects of religiosity. You know, there are there are things to do with morality, and there are things to do with um, sort of um, uh, ritual behavior and participation in a community. But then you have the very specific uh, metaphysical beliefs—the belief in um you know a sort of a hidden world um a higher power and a and a sort of magical reality beyond the physical and it's specifically those beliefs that are associated with gambling fallacies and gambling problems so yeah so these cognitive aspects are pretty interesting too
0: i wonder whether or i wonder how um how the ease of gambling and the addictiveness of gambling has changed over time so um I did my, um, I, I studied as an academic. My area of specialization was 18th century literature. And almost every great panoramic 18th century novel features a feckless, uh, feckless son of the aristocracy who loses all of his inheritance through, by gambling at the gaming tables. Mm. And there are so many Descriptions of the kind of grip that gambling has, particularly over men, or over women who are especially masculinized or evil, or um, <laughs> the more the more kind of morally repugnant women, but all kinds of men, a, a, any kind of man can be susceptible to this, mm-hmm. and especially, but, but, of course, young men. Yeah,
1: yeah. But I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna pick you up on that, especially young men, indeed. Yeah.
0: I want to read a, a little description, a couple of uh, short descriptions, if I can. This is from the nineteenth century. This is from um, George Eliot. At the very beginning of *Daniel Deronda*, um, the 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 protagonist is at a casino somewhere in Central Europe, and he's watching all of the players, and he gives a long description of all the different kinds of people who gamble there. And at the end, he says, while every single player differed markedly from every other, there was a certain uniform negativeness of expression, which had the effect of a mask, as if they had all eaten of some root that for the time compelled the brains of each to the same narrow monotony of action. And I've recently been rereading uh, middle March, and there's a short scene in there in which the um, the doctor and medical researcher Lydgate, who is is short of is short of money, has gone to the Green Dragon Inn, this pub where they have a billiard table out out the back, and you can bet on your own billiard playing, and he is usually he usually just watches the billiards for a while, maybe he has a pint of beer and leaves. But on this particular night, he decides to gamble. And Fred Vincy, the yo- the feckless young man character in Middlemarch, who is rather addicted to gambling on horse racing and on billiard playing, uh, comes in and it's a turning point for him seeing reflected in Lydgate these, uh, the, w- the transformation that the psychological transformation that happens to gamblers. And she writes, Lydgate, who had habitually an air of self-possessed strength and a certain meditativeness that seemed to lie behind his most observant attention, was acting, watching, speaking with that excited, narrow consciousness which reminds one of an animal with fierce eyes and retractile claws. Lydgate, by betting on his own strokes, had won 16 pounds. But young Hawley's arrival had changed the poise of things. So, a, an expert billiards player has arrived to um, compete against him. He made first rate strokes himself and began to bet against Lydgate's strokes, the strain of whose nerves was thus changed from simple confidence in his own movements to defying another person's doubt in them. The defiance was more exciting than the confidence, but it was less sure. He continued to bet on his own play, but began often to fail. Still, he went on for his mind was as utterly narrowed into that precipitous crevice of play as if he had been the most ignorant lounger there
2: mm.
0: so it's a very i mean I think that this is something that's been described in um in literature, certainly from the earliest times that we know of um there are descriptions certainly in classical Greek mythology. Of problem gambling. So, how do you think that, that has, that technology has, um, or do you think that technology has exacerbated these um, dangers?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I guess on on one hand, um, you're right in that it seems to be a cross cultural and historical constant in a way. Um, um, so many cultures have have independently uh innovated the idea uh of gambling um and just from a sort of um biological point of view um it's definitely the case that uh young men seem uh much more primed towards this kind of uh risk taking and uh the rash impulsivity that's associated with gambling which is basically seeking out big rewards um Uh, you know even though it's um a risky proposition um so just getting back to the um evo psych stuff a little bit i mean this kind of makes sense in that young men tend to take um a lot of uh risks across the board um whether it's um driving cars in a stupid manner or drinking too much or uh, criminal behaviour, you name it. Um, young men tend to be tend to be the worst, um, and this makes a weird kind of sense just because of the um, um, reproductive asymmetries and um, um, associated with sex. Um, but in terms of the technology. Um the the technology certainly has an effect. Like one can have gamble and have gambling problems with with very little technology. You can um there are some, you know, gambling games um um involving just, just a pair of dice or something equally simple that doesn't require much technology. But they don't really um provide the same level of involvement uh and engagement that the high-tech gambling provides. So Um, these um, modern poker machines are are designed for the purpose of being addictive. I mean, the gambling industry doesn't necessarily think about it like that. They don't um, necessarily think about uh, making people addicted. Um, Really what they want to do is maximize what they call time on machine, which is just to keep people um, gambling for as long as possible, um, which basically equates to spending as much as possible, which is just a natural thing for a profit-oriented company to want to do. So as a result they when when they when you have a computerized gambling game you can optimize so many uh aspects of it to take advantage of all of our psychological vulnerabilities. So for instance with those uh slot machines or uh, poker machines um where where the reels spin and if they line up then then you win. Um those those spinning wheels are not um physically uh realistic in that they will they will set those up so that they you get what's called um, near misses much more often than you would statistically speaking if you were actually working with real reels if you like so so you will let, let's say a whole bunch of I don't know gold diamonds um, are, are the things that you will win on um, they need to line up for you to win what what you what they will do is design it so that it almost lines up but not quite um, much more often than would otherwise happen. So that gives that feeling of frustration. It gives you the impression uh, that you that you might win um, and that you should just persevere for a little bit longer um, and, um, and it might just happen for you. The other thing they do is um, a thing called losses disguised as wins. So if you're playing a game, for instance, which costs you a dollar uh, every time you spin, um, then they will set up, the the wins so that you you have a few wins where you win more than a dollar maybe 10 dollars or 100 dollars even but they're very rare what they will do is set up a lot of wins where you win sort of in quotation marks um 30 cents or 50 cents so the same sounds and the same like it might even have coins falling across the screen so the same visual stimuli the same auditory stimuli that played when you really did win a significant amount of money also play when you've only won, say, 30 cents. So you've obviously lost 70 cents, but so that's what we call a loss described as a win. So they, they do a lot of tinkering and tailoring in order to um, make them as deceptive as possible. The, the other thing they do, to, which is uh, essentially to take advantage of our, um, our patent recognition facilities, is to provide an awful lot of redundant information so you know you would know i know if 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 you're um lying on the grass and looking up at the sky and looking at the clouds um you know we have an affinity for seeing patterns in random stimuli so um it's very easy for us to see um you know shapes in the clouds a dog or an elephant or whatever um so we do the same thing when we're looking at at, at data or, or, or any kind of um, stimuli so what they will do is even though it's a perfectly random game and what that means is that there's nothing there's really no information that's going to help you win or help you make better decisions but what they do is they do provide you with a lot of information that is that is useless so that they will they will show you for instance hot numbers these these are the numbers that have come up a lot recently or um, you know um, this is the sort of sequence of plays or you um, you know, so they provide you with information that is actually useless. it's it's like it's like patterns in the clouds. but what they are encouraging you to do is to see patterns in there and encourage you to think that there is some some technique, some strategy um, that will enable you to win. So in other words, they they encourage um, gambling fallacies.
0: Right. My, my sister and I used to have this, uh, ongoing argument about playing the lottery, which we would play once a year uh, around Christmas, New Year. We would fill out a lottery card and, um, I would bet on the numbers one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. And my sister argued very, very passionately that those numbers were much less likely to come up than <laughs> a combination that included low numbers, uh, middling high numbers, and high numbers <laughs> in a kind of spread like one, seventeen, twenty-eight, forty-six, fifty-two, 28, 46, 52, and 63, or something like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, well, your sister was was wrong, but she was also right. So she was wrong in that those numbers are no more likely to come up than any other sequence of numbers. Exactly um, equal likelihood there. On the other hand, you are better off uh, choosing random numbers in the lottery because, simply because uh, the prizes are divided amongst the people who choose those numbers. So um, any kind of pattern, um, basically other people are choosing, you know, Tend to choose patterns, even birthdays and things like that. Tend to tend tend to cluster in certain sort of patterns of numbers. Um, so you're better off choosing perfectly random numbers because that's that'll give you the lowest um, likelihood that someone else has chosen those numbers. So, right. so there is a very weak strategy. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> even something like the lottery is 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 random, but there is uh, a very basic strategy which you could apply. That's true, but you still <laughs> still not a great idea.
0: So I. I know that, that um, many gambling companies employ psych- in-house psychologists, or rather I suspect they do. Is that true?
1: Um, I'm not entirely sure. Um, they certainly do um, make pretty clever decisions based on people's psychology, so they may well. Um, I, I know that they do employ computational statisticians to design their uh, games, but I'm not 100% sure about psychologists.
0: Have you had much pushback from the industry for your own work?
1: Uh, Yes, I'm afraid so. (laughs) They do. Um, There is a lot of money at stake, obviously, um, when it comes to this. So um, it's not one of those academic pursuits like, I don't know, studying black holes, which nobody cares about. Um, The um, government policy and regulation is informed by the research, So, if um, if the results we are coming up with are um, advising for, say, a more stringent um, uh, regulation of of gambling, um, doing something like, for instance, um, putting limits on the amount that people can can bet on a single spin in a poker machine, then that is going to cut into the industry profits. So they do push back uh, quite a bit, um, and yeah so this uh, has occurred in 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 my case I guess where um the uh, national um industry organization in New Zealand did um did commission um corporate finance consultants who who um paid them a large amount of money I think to uh attempt to discredit our uh research on gambling which uh showed the magnitude essentially um of the impacts um in the country um the new zealand ministry of health which um, um commissioned the research subject to multiple uh nuisance freedom of information requests from um from lobby groups um and it's kind of ironic actually um i because um yeah I, I i did write a paper on um on um on electronic cigarettes um and um uh, addiction in people who used e-cigarettes versus people um, who, who, who were formerly smokers. Um, and the results came up um, somewhat positive about e-cigarettes. Um, so it seemed that um, the, um, Philip Morris and um, the British American Tobacco took, took notice of this. So, that, so ever since I wrote this paper, they've been sending me letters uh, asking me, me if we could uh, please uh, find opportunities to work together. Since they have a financial interest in that, and see me as a potential uh, useful uh, person, uh, at the same time um, they're one of the organisations that that uh, that that fund these, um, uh, I guess, um, front activist organisations who are who are attempting to discredit my gambling research. <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, it, I'm, I'm seeing it from both ends. I'm seeing the. Um, the um a little bit of push and pull from these companies from both end of the from from, from both ends
0: so why do they think you would be useful to them if presumably you're showing that e-cigarettes are preferable to using to smoking actual cigarettes and oh, they're well, manufacturing they... actual cigarettes or have i misunderstood
1: oh no no they've um they're they're moving into e-cigarettes as well so right um, yeah they the, i I'm, I'm sure that they are um using different methods to try to um, push back against government regulation on standard cigarettes, but I think they realize that's pretty much at least in places like australia are uh, um a losing proposition. They can see the writing on the wo- on the wall there, so they are moving into uh, electronic cigarettes and um um, I look, I, I don't know what's going on in their head, but I think um, they, um, judging from the letters I received from Philip Morris, I got one today, actually, um, they seem very interested in, um, in liberalisation on e-cigarette policy here.
0: Right. So you have many opportunities for profitable wickedness.
1: <laughs> i do i do and um yeah i i could um i i could um stop with the um so I've, i should say by the way I, we don't take any research uh funding from from any industry organization let alone um the uh tobacco industry or the gambling industry um we we are only funded by um um uh, independent um generally government funded uh, research organizations um but, um, yeah, some, some researchers do um, uh, accept money uh, directly from the gambling industry. And, um, uh, yeah, I think that's a problem.
0: Have there been attempts to actually uh, silence you or to, to, debu- to discredit your, your work or discredit you as a researcher or your department?
1: Uh yeah, certainly. I mean that's that's um that's um that report I mentioned uh commissioned f- um for the um the uh, peak industry organization in New Zealand um was I suppose what you'd call a hatchet job that was just a a, a purely a purely um, um, politically motivated uh, attack. N- not a normal kind of, um, you know, in academia and, and research, we have a lot of, you know, um, friendly rivalry and a lot of, um, uh, you know, that's, it's all part of rigorous research to, to get criticism. But um, that was uh, um, a different kind of thing where, where they had uh, um, commissioned independent consultants to just um, set about attempting to discredit the research and also put as much pressure on the um the um the ministry um to um withdraw and um the research or or sort of disavow the research so i see that kind of thing as an immensely um positive thing i see it as a huge compliment to, to, see, to see that they're worried enough um by what we're doing to to spend a lot of money to um attempt um to, to attempt to push back on it um because um yeah, it, it, it means we're having an influence. I mean, I, I should say, by the way, I know, I mean, I know this is another topic which you're interested in. I don't, I mean, we have researchers in this area who definitely see themselves as activist researchers, you know, people who, who have a social mission, um, in this, you know, a, a social justice mission, if you like, who, who see that their their, their, their task to make the world a better place, um, by, um, doing research, um, writing papers, um, for the purpose of uh, changing policy, so I don't, um, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. But uh, for me personally, um, and for my research group, what we try to do is we try to do uh, the best possible science that we can. And in fact, we've published research which, um, you know, in in some limited ways, shows that there are some uh, potential benefits of gambling as well, at, at least among people who. Who, who don't have gambling problems so so we don't mind going off script um, really we we try to be the kinds of researchers that just adopt a, a neutral scientific stance and describe the social uh, or, or the psychological reality as best we can um, and in terms of what that implies the implications of it we we try to leave that to um, the government or journalists or, or other people who are who are um, activists in some way, shape, or form, they're free to use that information any way they like. Um, But we try to be um, neutral and scientific about it. But even being neutral and scientific, um, doing research on things like um, cigarettes or gambling or even alcohol, um, you will attract the attention of interested parties.
0: What are the potential benefits? Well... Um, I'm not, I mean, our,
1: what, what we found is that um, um, we, we, um, this wasn't the intention of our study. It was almost a side effect, I suppose. But we'd, we'd been studying health and well-being. So that's, and, and we were measuring that using just a self-reported scale. Um, and, and we found that, um, sure, as people, as gambling problems increased, um, then not surprisingly, health and well-being went down significantly. But when you control for that and you look to people who don't gamble at all versus people who gamble a little bit versus people who gamble relatively heavily, so this is completely independent from gambling problems. We actually found this bump in in health and well being. In other words, those those people who gambled more, assuming you don't have any problems, actually um, had higher self reported um, uh, well being than people who didn't. So. Uh, the, we're just speculating um, as to the reasons for that, but there, there are a bunch of possible explanations. Obviously, one explanation is that gambling is a hell of a lot of fun and it makes you happy, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe it's that's that's one explanation. On the other hand, um, it could well be that simply people who have more money um, and um, have more free leisure time, um, the ability to um, you know, maybe don't have a lot of responsibilities, um, a lot of disposable income, um, are, are the ones who are actually going out on the town and doing hedonic pursuits like gambling. And they could be doing a lot of other things, socialising, you know, having all kinds of parties or drinking or whatever. So so it could, in fact, I think it's most likely a um, not a direct causal relationship there. It's just an association.
0: Do you think that there are, Certain personality types who are more susceptible. Do you think that there is an addictive personality? Um, so I I know that that recently the rat part the famous rat park experiment has failed to replicate. I was reading about that in Stuart J Ritchie's work, former guest on this podcast. So the the rat pack. Park experiment, which I'll describe briefly in case anyone listening doesn't know what I'm talking about, is the experiment where they placed rats in cages and they gave them access to uh, sugared water that was laced with heroin, I believe it was. And the rats could press a lever to obtain the, the sugared water. And some rats were were in miserable bare cages, and others were in these more fun cages that had other rats in them for sociability and had little obstacle courses and things, and those were known as the rat park. And the rats in the more stimulating cages, who had the company of other rats and who had other things to do, took less heroin than the rats in the in the bare, miserable, solitary cages. Mm. So there. The theory was that addictions like gambling are caused by deprivations elsewhere in life. And that's a, a view strongly taken by Johann Hari, um, particularly in his book, Lost Connections. But I know that experiment has failed to replicate. And I wonder what you, how you feel about those, uh, those theories, the mm. idea of a, of an intrinsically addictive, personality type and someone who will always no matter what circumstances they are in gravitate toward be liable to or susceptible to gravitating towards addictive behaviors versus the idea that addictive behaviors are a substitute for more basic lacks um mm. such as a compensation for loneliness
1: yeah okay um I guess there's a couple of aspects to that. I guess the first thing is the compensatory uh, aspect, and I, look, I think it's true, in that people do uh, seek out. Um, look, well, look. The first thing to say is that these things are, are highly multi-causal, so there isn't a single smoking gun and a single cause of of gambling uh, problems or, or or any kind of addiction, or for, in fact, any kind of um um psychological disorder um they're always highly multi-causal so that's the first caveat right so um what we're talking about is just contributing factors so one contributing factor i think is that idea of um compensation which is alleviating negative affect essentially and you know if you look at people who who drink too much or do or or have all kinds of um um um, Behavioural problems—they um, are often, um, you know, driven by um, a desire to alleviate negative affect, and that that could be boredom or loneliness or or, or all kinds of things. So, um, you know, it 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 can be um, it can be the case that um, negative life events, stressful life events. Um, things like losing a job or um, becoming, um, you know, um, um, divorce, things like that, um, can can be a trigger for the development of of, of all kinds of behavioral problems. Um, gambling can be one of them, um, and you know, we sort of touched on that before when we talked about escape. You know, being one of those motivating um, sort of behaviors, uh, sort of or, or motivating factors. So that's that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is um you asked about whether or not there's a, such a thing as an addictive personality. And that's that's obviously a bit of a, a simplistic way to um think about it. But I I think it's kind of true in the sense that um look, it's an area of active research at the moment, but there's there's um concepts like reward deficiency syndrome, where they um has has uh, i I believe and i'm not a i'm not a, a psychiatrist or and i'm i'm not involved in um that sort of biological aspect of it too much, but my understanding is is that they've um got pretty good evidence that um sort of um, um dysfunction in the dopaminergic system so that sort of part of the brain that sort of manages that that sort of dopamine and reward um, um, uh in terms of managing one's behavior uh, approaching uh, positive stimuli uh, avoiding negative stimuli that kind of thing um they've they found some evidence that um dopaminergic dysfunction is uh a risk factor not just for gambling but for a lot of other impulsive and compulsive behavioral problems um so you've got alcoholism uh drug use um, even um, sex addiction or um, other kinds of um, antisocial uh, behaviors so i think it's true i mean I think that there is um, some people are more i guess prone to seek out those sort of dopamine hits of reward uh, more than others and that, but that obviously doesn't mean it's the it's the only factor and it obviously doesn't mean that just because one is a bit like that. For instance, I think I'm a bit like that. I tend to be attracted to um, alcohol and uh, things like that more than my wife, for instance, who's just a more, I guess, in terms of her affect, is just more on on an even keel um, than I am. So I I need to watch out for um, doing things to excess a little bit more than she does. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm... um, I'm, um, condemned to a life of addiction, it just means that I have a slightly greater susceptibility to it than her. So yeah, that would be my take on it.
0: Do you think that there are some societal measures that we would ideally take to um, to reduce the, the amount of the number of problem gamblers in society or the amount of problem gambling that is happening?
1: Yeah. Um, looks, I mean, uh, there are. I know are you're some, not an
0: activist, but if you could snap yeah. your fingers and and make these measures happen, are there yeah. certain measures that you think would be worth implementing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think about that stuff, and I'm very happy to talk about it too. I just I put it in a separate box when I'm thinking about things we should do, um, and when I'm sort of attempting to describe uh, reality. I just i sort of put on a different hat if you know what I mean <laughs> so uh yeah look, I mean, I think there are a lot of things, but maybe there's a bit of an interesting sort of philosophical question there, which is that um so look i I kind of subscribe to a utilitarian um approach to uh public policy and that is we wanna make we wanna make um uh, policy decisions that contribute to the greatest health and happiness for the greatest number of people um look there's there's philosophical philosophical problems with that but as a as a rule of thumb it's not a bad guide for policy so we could do heaps of things uh um to optimize that um but what we run into is a bit of a a question which is to what degree should we limit people's freedom to do uh things that might not be good for them so um if, if we took a really strict um, um, sort of approach to maximizing health and well-being, then it might be a good idea, it, it, assume we could do it, um, to completely, you know, make alcohol completely illegal and to put, a, put great big taxes on sugar and um, um, uh, maybe prohibit a whole bunch of other things that people like to do, um, ranging from, I don't know, riding motorbikes to <laughs> you name it. Um, you know, if 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 we do the math and calculate that on average it's gonna it's gonna contribute to less health and well-being um than um then if we banned it, then we do that stuff. But obviously all that stuff comes with the cost of limiting people's freedom. And I wonder so the interesting philosophical question I think is do we put a, a bit of a price on on or a put or do we put a value on on that ability to um make our own decisions? Um, even when they're somewhat, um, somewhat silly ones. Um, but look, that's, that's the, fo- the, philosophy, the philosophy side of things. In terms of practical things we can do, uh, absolutely. I, I, I'm not in favour of completely banning gambling, um, nor do I think we should ban alcohol or, or, or anything else. In fact, I think we should legalise um, um, drugs and manage them rather than make them, making them criminal. But what we can do is basically stop the predatory behaviour of companies, um, in terms which which are basically deriving most of their profits from a very small segment of the market, that is a small proportion of the consumers are actually um, delivering the vast majority of the profits to the companies and also government revenue. And these are the people who who really can't afford to spend that much on gambling. And a lot of we we can do things like um, limiting the amount that is bet. Um, on on single spins we can do simple things like instead of people gambling with cash we can just get people to use uh like a plastic card like a loyalty card and simple things like that will enable us to uh track how much is being spent and identify the people that are that are spending increasingly large amounts of money and and intervene in in various sort of soft ways to 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 help the people who need it um so yeah there's there's a bunch of things we could do if we ha- if there was the political will um which we actually wouldn't um impinge on people's freedom to gamble or do other silly things um uh, very much but to be honest the political will isn't there simply because um there's just so much money rolling in that um nobody wants to rock the boat
0: It seems that these companies are making huge profits and have to take very little risk themselves there's a guaranteed level of profit that you have as a um as a as the company creating the slot machines or the casinos and Aye. i wonder if there's some way to contract that so it's one of the few things in which i completely agree with margaret thatcher there should be no profit without risk
1: hmm yeah, yeah. Um, no, well, you're certainly right. They're certainly, even though they're providing uh, a, a gambling product, they are certainly not gambling themselves. <laughs> they, they, um, and you know, if you install a poker machine, it is guaranteed. It's played a certain amount of time. It's guaranteed to deliver you, um, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars or pounds per annum. Um, there is absolutely no risk in, um, um, involved. Um, um, in the product itself, at all for companies, um, no. I mean, in, in terms of how, uh, from the company's point of view, it's purely a, a leisure product, an entertainment product, like like a company providing, I don't know, um, um, a water slide park or a movie cinema or something like that. Um, I think the difference is is that um, when a company is providing an entertainment product, like um, um um and some, well, some other entertainment product then the price is is very clear you know you pay it you pay you know um ten dollars or twenty dollars for a, for a ticket to to go see a movie or or enter a, a theme park or something and it, it, it's very clear what you're paying and it's clear what you're getting the the weird thing about gambling is that the price the actual the price of the entertainment is is actually involved in the actual Process of betting um, and the the sort of wins and losses that transpire. So so the the true cost is kind of concealed um, from the consumer,
0: and it's not transparent. I mean, one thing you could do is uh, make them have a counter above the machine which showed exactly what your balance was. Mm-hmm. So if, even if uh, so, rather than rewarding rewarding you quote unquote with bells and whistles for having won 30 cents and lost 70 it would say your current balance is minus seventy cents
1: yeah exactly yeah so what one, one of the big issues with gambling is that like if if people put in say um, ten dollars and and then gambled with that ten dollars and then if they won, say, $100, then, then they would pick the money up and leave. Or if they lost it all, then they would just leave. But what, what happens is any money you win just gets added to the balance that you've got in the machine. So in actual fact, people just tend to, even if they win, they'll just tend to keep playing until all the money is gone. So, yeah, um, as you say, there's heaps of things that we could do in terms of providing feedback to people who play. So one of the things we can easily calculate is the what's called the expected losses, which is if you play at a given level of intensity, say you know you could be betting, you could choose to you, you could choose to bet very small bets you on multiple lines. There's a whole bunch of things one could configure um, with a lot of these um, um, uh, betting products, but it's very easy to calculate what the expected losses—that is, on average, how much you can expect to lose um, um, in in a given 10 minutes or a given hour whatever so that that expected loss could be so that's actually the true cost um over the long term of the entity I'm sort of using scare quotes here of the entertainment <laughs> um per hour so that could actually be displayed to people and you know i think most people would be quite shocked at how expensive it is to actually play so if if you're playing it just if let's say you're a reasonably rational person you realize that you're not going it's not a great way to make money um, you're not expecting to win over the long term. You just want to have a bit of fun and relax for an hour, which is actually how most people um, who do gamble, um, um, that's that's the attitude they take when when, when they play. Um, it w- I think it would be helpful to them too, to have that figure there so they can see what the cost of their... The entertainment, or just zoning out, their, their sort of little bit of dark flow <laughs> time, if you like, um, what the cost is to them. So to help them make a um, um, a healthy decision.
0: What proportion of gamblers are problem gamblers?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a good question. So the the proportion of so it depends where we set the threshold for problem gambling. We have there's a number of instruments one can use. There's the um, the DSM. Um, criteria uh, for pathological gambling. There are various screens we use, like the Problem Gambling Severity Index, which can classify people as um, a likely problem gambler. So it depends what we use. But if we use that a standard screen um, that's well accepted, then the proportion of problem gamblers in the population is relatively low—only one to two percent. Um, but there's—but um, it should be said, by the way, that those. Players actually um, provide a much larger proportion of because they gamble so much more with, with so much more money than than other gamblers. They they actually provide um, um, a, a, a very large chunk of gamb- of industry revenue. But if we if we look a little bit further out, we have other categories like what we call moderate risk gamblers or low risk gamblers. And when we start looking at those people, then the percentages increase like 2 to 3% or um, uh, up to 9% for low risk gamblers. So what, we, what we've found in the research that we've done is that, well, up until now, there's been this real focus on problem gamblers only. So there's been this kind of medical or pathological model where the whole idea is to say, okay, let's try to find those people who have like a mental disorder and detect those people. And those people are the problem, if you like. It's not the product that's the problem. It's not the industry that's the problem. It's those people <laughs> who, these problem gamblers with their mental disorder that are the problem, and let's try to identify them and cure them. So that's, that's a kind of pathological model. But what we've found in looking at the harms that people are reporting, so this is things like, not having enough money to spend on medication and healthcare, um, not having to sell personal items to fund gambling, or you know, being late on paying bills, or um, um, not being able to pay off your credit card debt. If we look at the incidence of, of like harms from gambling, we see that they are not confined just to those pathological gamblers, but they're actually spread out in the population through the moderate risk and the low risk, and even some recreational gamblers occasionally experience these things as well. So actually, if you look at where the impact is happening uh, in the population, it's not just the 1% of people who might have um, some sort of clinical, who might pass the bar for some sort of clinical disorder. It's actually normal, everyday people who, who don't necessarily have any kind of disorder but are actually experiencing harm from gambling. So th- this is analogous to alcohol. I think it's, you know, most people understand that you don't have to be an alcoholic to get harm from alcohol, right? So mm. there are lots of things like car accidents, domestic violence. There's all kinds of bad things that can happen as a result of alcohol uh, misuse. Uh, and you don't have to be an alcoholic for, for that stuff to happen to you or to someone around you.
2: So no, the you only thing have to be,
0: be drunk once and text your ex to know that <laughs> know that the harms can happen, <laughs> and it could have this been the true. only time you were drunk in that entire month.
1: <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure this is a purely hypothetical uh, example. Yes, of, pure, uh, purely yes.
0: hypothetical. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, so yeah, so that's one of the things that's that we're on a mission to sort of do. When, when we're not trying to, you know, um, exaggerate the um, the the downsides or the impacts of, of gambling. It's it's just like any other thing that we need to manage, just just like alcohol in uh, in society. And um, you know, it's just a matter of having a realistic appraisal of of the pros and cons, and not trying to control people's lives and tell them what they're not allowed to do this or whatever. Um, but to just um, structure things so that the the industry isn't so predatory that it doesn't just sort of extract so much money from people that 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 can't afford it, um, and to yeah to just take sensible measures to um, reduce those harms that are occurring out there.
0: So I, I guess you're advocating just more transparency. You give people the information, and then you allow people to make their own minds up based on the information.
1: Um, yeah, look, there's a few things. I mean, it's there's this is sort of coming from uh, like um, what they call public, a public health point of view, which is you just try to manage. You just try to manage the thing, and the the thing could be literally anything. It could be. Um, air pollution or car accidents you know um and and there's you know if you're trying to minimize something like car minimize something like car accidents then there's a whole range of things it could be you know speed cameras there could be you know better roads there could be uh, safer cars with airbags you know there's a whole range of things you can do it's not a matter of saying oh people aren't allowed to drive now we're going to stop car accidents by stopping people from driving, but there's a whole range of things one can do. So it's this, The same is true of gambling. So one a part of it could be better information, but I think a big part of it, in fact, the, the main part of it, is making the product safer. It's like it's like building safer cars. So so not letting the um, the operators, the gambling companies. Essentially, do whatever they like, which is what what they will like is to maximize profits, which will be to um, it, um, extract the most amount of money from as many people as they can, which will cause problems and um, cause people to um, it, it exacerbate any vulnerabilities to addiction. Um, it's about building safer gambling products. So there's a range of things you can do there. Um, one one of the basic things is is limiting the uh, amount of money that, that can be spent in a given sort of period of time or, or the rate at which people are, are spending money. Um, but as I said, another really good thing to do is just to have like a very simple uh, tracking procedure with like a like card-based gambling where um, we can just, um, you could just pay attention to um, I basically identify those people that are spending increasingly large amounts of money um and just um do some soft interventions with those people have a chat with them maybe direct them to some um other options or even direct them to some gambling products which are designed not to extract so much money from them you can actually you could actually design a gambling a gambling um um product uh, a poker machine say that is designed to be a zero take machine so it so it still allows people to play the game, but on average it's going to return 100% of what they bet. You don't have to keep basically hoovering money out of their wallets. You can still let them gamble. Mm.
0: Yeah, it seems extraordinary to me that we're not even allowed to to um buy two packs of paracetamol at once in case of in case of harm, but we can sit in a casino for as many hours as as we like and many Mm -hmm. of them are open 24 hours a day. And when I was researching for this podcast, I actually came upon advertisements for a product called Players Advantage, which was adult nappies for people who wanted to not be Mm -hmm. interrupted from their slot machine playing by needing to pee or poo.
1: Yeah, it's terrible. Um, And in fact, you know, um, some of my colleagues have done research on um, or with Um, staff who work in casinos and, you know, casinos sign up to all kinds of um, 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 charters and um, regulatory things where they undertake to provide the safe provision of gambling. So there's lots of fine sentiments expressed in that. But in actual fact, when you talk to the people who actually work there, they say the, the main thing is is just to never... Never, never interfere with someone's gambling. Just, just you know, if, if, if there's a problem or they're super upset or something like that, you might take them aside a little bit because you don't want them to make a fuss. But, but really, they will do anything rather than uh, interfere with somebody's gambling. Um, they'll report things like um, collecting uh, glasses um, next to machines that are full of urine um, because somebody is just can't tear themselves away from the, uh, the machine. Um, that the, the, report people who have been sitting in there for six or eight hours straight and they, they don't, you know, nobody steps in to say, Hey, maybe you've had enough. Um, so yeah, you, you're quite right. Iona, there's, there's, um, there's much more stringent, um, or, or much higher expectations among, uh, for say the provision of alcohol where people will intervene where, where people are completely drunk um but with gambling uh not so much
0: mm. is there anything that you uh wish you could have said in this conversation which i haven't asked you or given you a chance to say
1: um, um i'm not really I, I i think i've i think we've covered pretty much any uh everything i think um i suppose um what we're trying to do is create um just ensure that the that the costs associated with gambling uh, are visible and not hidden, and we'd encourage, um, you know, um, people in the government but also people in um, the public to to demand, uh, I guess, rational um, uh, policy on on gambling. Ultimately, it, it, it's up to it's not up to the researchers. It's it's up to society to decide um, what we um, want to see. Um, and I don't think there's any need for, um, allowing highly predatory commercial behavior that, that hurts so many people. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's all I'd advise for. Um, my, my mission is to just pro- provide that sort of clear eyed view of, of what's going on, uh, with the industry and the impacts it has on people. Um, and if we can allow people to, um, have as much fun as possible, but, um, not get hurt too much, then yeah, I think we'll be on the right track.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today and have a wonderful week, everyone.
1: Thanks so much, Erena.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.